Welcome to the Church Times podcast. Try 10 issues for £10 or two months access to our website and apps also for £10. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash new hyphen reader. This is Sarah Merrick with the Church Times podcast, and today I'm absolutely delighted to have as a guest Cariad Lloyd, the comedian and writer. And the first thing to say, Cariad, is congratulations on your new book, You Are Not Alone. I'm a great fan of the podcast, um, and I absolutely love the book. So thank you for writing it. And I wondered if we could start. There will be some people out there, remarkably, who are not familiar with Griefcast, <laughs> your podcast. Um, would you mind just telling us a little bit about it, please? Yes, of course. And thank you for having me. Um, so Griefcast, I started in 2016 um, as a podcast where I interviewed other comedians primarily because they were my friends and they were easy to contact <laughs> about their experiences of grief and death. And when I tell people I do a podcast about death, sometimes they raise their eyebrows a little bit like, oh, <laughs> but the reason is my dad died when I was 15 of pancreatic cancer. And so I have been in the club as we say on the show, for a very long time. And I've been talking about it for a very long time. And I wanted to create a space where you could talk about grief in a really real, honest way without any kind of like, you know, soft voices. And oh, I'm so sorry, that's happened. Just be like, this was what happened. It was really awful. And this is how I feel. So that's how the grief class began. And I think it was in 2016, you, you first ventured into the territory. Did you ever imagine that here we'd be in 2023 and you'd still be running it? No, ne never, never, ever, ever. I I did four episodes at first and my thinking was, because I kept thinking, oh, I should do a podcast about death. Like that, it just sort of popped in my head. And I kept thinking, well, that's a terrible idea. No one will listen, but it wouldn't go away. So I thought, well, I'll do four. And then that idea can just be, you know, settled. It, it will leave me alone. And, um, and I, I can do something else. I can go back to doing comedy that was my plan and um after having my first child that's when I launched the podcast just after I'd had her and I set up an email address for the podcast just another friend who does the podcast said to me I'll oh, just set up a you know easy email in case people need to get a hold of you and as soon as I released the four episodes I just started getting hundreds of emails <laughs> from people saying I didn't know other people felt like this I thought I was having a breakdown I didn't realize it was grief I, I thought I was the only person that ever thought these things and then I sort of sat there and I launched it in the December of 2016 and sort of you know in the new year of the 2017 I thought oh I kind of have to continue doing this <laughs> like and I find the word calling a bit weird but it, it felt to me like oh you know, it's clear you're meant to be doing this. Like the world is telling you this many people want this. This is useful. And I and I think grief, you don't feel very useful in grief. So it felt like, wow, I could do something useful, even though I'm talking about grief. So yeah, I never expected to still be doing it, but it kind of just rolled on and, and kept going. That's fascinating. And, and you do it very beautifully. You have a very light touch with people and you're very, very good at drawing out of them their story. Um, I was just thinking, I don't know if you're aware, but Anderson Cooper, the very famous American news anchor, of course, he's been yes. in the news the last week having interviewed Prince Harry. He recently ventured into this territory and um, he started a podcast, I think, in last last September called All There Is. Um, and he's had a hugely positive reaction. And you've won all sorts of awards um, and had millions of listeners. I mean, apart from being 
really brilliant at what you do. Why do you think it struck such a chord now? Uh, <laughs> um, well, I think we don't talk about death enough, basically. And even though we're better than we were, I would, you know, hand on heart, we definitely are better um, than, say, 50 years ago. We don't talk about it enough. We don't give space to grief. We don't allow people to be sad. We kind of expect people after a year, maybe two years to stop going on about it. And we never say that out loud, but there's this sort of, you know, agreed social rule in the same way that, it, you know, we all know how to cue. <laughs> we all know if someone's pushed in front of us and we all know it's awkward if someone's crying about grief. And there's an innate uncomfortableness about that. But the problem with that is that people who are grieving want to talk about it desperately they desperately want to talk about the people that they've lost they desperately want to talk about the experience they've been through and this life-changing experience when you do lose someone and you realize so many different things about your world and who you are and who they were and so I think myself when I began you know all those years ago really what I didn't realize I felt like oh I would quite like to talk about this but I didn't realize oh everybody everyone wants to talk about it so you open this door and there's hundreds of people being like yeah me too let me through and of course so many of us have lost people have been in grief are living with grief have been through something that actually you realize the club as we say on the show is massive it's huge it's absolutely huge and I think you know I see so many grief podcasts now because it's like we realize oh we're all desperate to have a space where we don't feel oh, I shouldn't say that, or no one wants me to talk about it, or they are uncomfortable because I'm bringing up someone who's died. And it's nice to be in a space where you know people aren't going to shut you down. They're just going to say, yeah, great, tell me about your person. And, and you, you write in the book about how doing the podcast actually has helped you. It's not just about the people you're talking to. Can you say a bit about, about that, how it's helped you process your grief? Yeah, massively. Again, unintentional. <laughs> I didn't set out thinking that. But obviously, talking about my grief week in, week out, things start to, I started to remember things I'd forgotten. I started to think about things in a different way. I was a bit more honest about some things that I'd sort of packed away or I was embarrassed or ashamed about. And then another guest would say, oh, like, you know, when I was at the hospital, I didn't want to be there. And I'd be like, oh, that's a, I also didn't want to be there. Like, oh my God. And that feeling, that relief, you know, when you do with another human connect and you're like, oh yes, we both, we both had that feeling. I'm not weird and I'm not isolated. It's so important to me and really, really helped my process. And I should say at the same time as starting the podcast, I started therapy. And so I think both those things went hand in hand, really, of I had a, a public space to talk about him, my dad, and I had a private space where I was going and really <laughs> snot crying about like all the like depths of it. But I think just talking, just talking without a timeline, without feeling guilty that I needed to stop, without being embarrassed, was really healing, really definitely healing. And reading your book, it becomes obvious to me as a reader, there's quite a gap between you you as a teenager and, and you now, the time period. Yes. It's quite long before you have this sense of healing. And I'm wondering, were you just not ready when you were younger to start processing the grief or was it just about not finding the right support at the right time? It's a bit of a mixture because so he died in, uh, my dad died in 1998 and there just wasn't any child bereavement services. They just, they didn't exist. I think Child Bereavement UK is a really brilliant one. And I think it started like the year after he he died. So I just didn't, you know, even know about it. Um, so there was definitely not really support at that time. But also I, I wasn't ready. And 
having spoken to so many people, I've done nearly 200 episodes now and spoken to a lot of people in the Teenage Grief Club, I my my theory, which is not, you know, academically proven, but that a lot of us in the, the Teenage Club don't talk about it till we're much older because you spend your teenage years quite confused. You have all the feelings, but you don't really have the vocabulary for what just happened to you. Your 20s, you're kind of like trying to minimise it. It's no big deal, just one of those things. My dad died, you know, hey, dad's died. No, who cares? And then you sort of hit your 30s and you go, oh, I think I'm, oh, maybe I was upset about that. <laughs> so it's quite common. And I've met a lot of other teenage grievers that have had a similar path. Um, and I think it's just when something happens to you very young, it's very hard to process. It's just really hard to process. You don't, you just can't. And so the thing with grief is, what I've learned is you think you can outrun it or hide from it or you don't have to deal with it but it just waits it's the most patient thing I've ever seen in my life it's just so patient it just it doesn't mind how long you've got is it will wait (laughs) no problem and then if you start really ignoring it it might give you some physical symptoms or it might give you some mental health symptoms because it's just knocking at the door really patiently being like you need to feel these emotions so um yeah I was very glad that I finally did Yes, and you're right, thinking about there being no provision, there's a very, I mean, it's funny, but agonising, the description in the book about how you go to some therapy, your mum sort of says you need to, you're you're in this awful room, and there's kind of (laughs) child-sized furniture, and you're kind of squatting awkwardly, Um, and so is the therapist, it just, I mean, it's just toe-curlingly awful, it was just (laughs) wrong. Bless them, yeah. Well, it's funny when you're a teenager. So I was 15 and my brother was 19. So my brother was able to access adult therapy. And because I was 15, I was categorized as a child. So every time we tried to find something for me, they they were like, oh, well, they, you can go to a children's group. And it literally was, as I describe in the book, like, you know, a playroom with educational toys and like a tiny, and I had to sit on this tiny chair and tiny table and with like you know pencils so that a seven-year-old might want to draw how they feel but obviously at 15 you're like I don't want to draw how I feel like this I'm not I'm beyond that so there just wasn't that that service for teenagers and I think it has really changed there's a lot more stuff now and a lot more stuff for young grievers particularly the grief network and let's talk about loss who are two brilliant brilliant organizations that work specifically with young grievers they sort of categorize that sort of you know I think it's like 17 to 18 to like 25 like that you know you don't fit into that picture of someone who's grieving so I would have I would have really loved that but yeah in 1998 you forget it was a long time ago (laughs) like it's pre the internet you can't google anything you know you just have to go on what's on the local notice board and that's what we found and it yeah it wasn't quite for me completely hit and miss I'm wondering too whether, um, I might be overthinking this, but does your experience of becoming a parent, did that make it more urgent to, or did that bring up some of the issues? Yes, definitely. Yes, absolutely. Not overthinking at all. I think a lot of things happened in 2016 that I, I hadn't really, you know, when things happen, you don't really, you, you think, oh, it's just coincidence, but it's like, right, actually. So I got pregnant, I started therapy, I started the podcast, and I think definitely becoming a parent sort of brought forward a lot of the feelings that I was running from because I was still trying to act like I was 15 in my head I was still 15 in my head he just died even though I absolutely was in my mid-30s there was a part of my brain that was like no I'm still 15 and once I got pregnant I was like oh even though obviously you can get pregnant at 15 but it was like oh I'm a grown-up so how can I be a grown-up and have these teenage feelings I need to like catch up with myself so yeah I think growing up and and becoming a parent in the way you know like he was a parent so suddenly you're in this job that he had that you never discussed with him and all the things that you 
think about your own childhood, start coming up of like, oh, it, it is hard to have a child. I see now. <laughs> Maybe he was very tired. Maybe that's why he was quite stressed. It's very stressful. Whereas when you're a kid, you're still in that, oh, what your job's easy. Like, it's very hard being me. Um, so yeah, I do think parenthood really can redefine the next stage of your grief. Um, now, you write um, very entertainingly um, in the book, but also quite with a certain amount of rage about <laughs> five stages of grief. Yeah. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yes, I'd like to apologise for my language in the book. I'm I'm a bit of a swearer and I'm doing my very best today not to do swearing for you because I, I unfortunately have a very bad habit from my dad who swore all the time. Um, so yeah, the five stages. So basically... The five stages theory, you probably, you know, most people are probably familiar with it, is that you go through five distinct emotions after someone dies. And it's, um, I always get them in the wrong order, but it's like uh, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance. So you reach acceptance at the end, someone has died and, and you're basically fine. And I'd heard of it when I lost my dad. And I kept thinking, well, I'm not, I'm not doing this five stages. I'm not doing it right at all. I just, I'm furious. I'm angry. I was angry for years. I was so angry he died. And I thought to myself, well, you know the five stages theory. So, oh dear, you're doing it wrong, Cariad. You're not ticking the boxes. So obviously you've, you've mucked up somewhere. You haven't read the exam properly, basically. I blamed myself. And then when I started the podcast and I started researching, I found out, oh, this, this is, not what this theory is at all and it was written in 1969 by the brilliant I should say brilliant Elizabeth Kubler-Ross fantastic woman incredible you know changed the world of the conversation around death was part of the hospice movement but she wrote this book on death and dying where she posited the theory but the theory came from people who were dying so the idea was if you told someone they were dying of cancer, specifically a terminal illness cancer, they would go through five distinct stages and they would reach an acceptance and their, their death would be quite peaceful. So she was talking about working with terminal ill patients in a hospital, predominantly of cancer. And she was trying to say to the medical profession, we should be honest, we should tell people they're dying. Because at that point in America in 1969, they weren't. <laughs> they weren't telling them. You know, people just thought they were having medicine that would make them better. So when you understand the birth of the theory makes total sense of course if you tell someone they're going to go through these five emotions they're going to be shocked and oh it's it's not happening to me maybe if I pray it will go away or maybe uh, why has this happened to me or I'm so angry oh I see I'm dying of cancer okay I can speak to my family and I can try and find a peace but it doesn't work for grieving because grieving doesn't have a, a full stop <laughs> unless you die you know grieving is you have to continue living with this pain so I I can't find the moment that it transferred from people who are dying to people who are living with grief, but it just sort of marched its way over and became that theory. And we swallowed it. Really, really entrenched in our culture. Um, Absolutely entrenched, yeah. And I still, the reason I wrote such a sort of vitriolic chapter about it is I still have people come up to me and say, in 2022 or 2023 as we are now, oh, I know I'm grieving wrong, I'm not doing the five stages. And it makes me so angry because it's like, it's not, a theory for you it wasn't invented for you it doesn't make sense for you and even her is Kubler-Ross herself said years later this has been misinterpreted it doesn't I, like I want to reframe it but here we are still believing because we want to believe there's an end to grief and so it's so it's such an appealing it's such a like chocolate cake with a cherry on top of like yes that's what grief is brilliant I'm going to go through these stages then I'm going to be okay and there's an end and because no, and I'll be done I'll be done I can feel like I did before they died 
but how can you ever feel like you did before they died? That doesn't mean you can't be happy and you can't experience joy and you can't laugh and feel contentment, but you can't feel like you did before they died because they died. <laughs> they they fundamentally aren't here anymore. And if you want to go to a point of acceptance, a point of I'm going to feel exactly as happy as I did before, that means they didn't exist. And the reason you're sad is because they did exist. You, see, you get into these like philosophical knots because it's... What a waste of energy as well, yeah. really. Um, and, and kind of if it becomes a stick to beat yourself with, that's just... Yeah, it becomes, an, you know, grief is hard enough without adding, oh, I've done it wrong. <laughs> it's, it should just be like, gosh, this is so hard. Like, it's so hard to feel all these things and miss someone this much and be this sad. But what I'm trying to say in the book is grief stays with you forever. But that doesn't mean every day I wake up and I fall to my knees and I weep and say, my father. Like, that's not what my days look like. It just means... If you ask me, is that a sad thing that happened to me? Yes. Do I still get sad about it sometimes? Yes. Are most days fine? Yes. And that is such an easier way to hold your grief than, oh, I should I should be accepting it by now. Like, why am I still talking about it during a podcast? That means I haven't hit stage five. Like, oh God, no, no, crazy. I think your book is so liberating and refreshing for all of that. And oh, I good. think it's helpful is the way you put it in context with how we're still in some ways informed by our Victorian ideas of grieving yes um, some yeah. of which are helpful because everybody can see that you're visibly a wounded person but some of which again are very rigid about you know exactly how long you should be grieving um for somebody and I also wonder if some of it is also still sort of post-war stuff where we're yeah. all very happily because you know we've just got to get on with things because you know things have been awful but we've all been through it so let's just rally round yeah, there's so many things that have that influence where we are now. And that's what I'm trying to do with the book is just like sort of just shine a light on some things to go. The reason you might feel like this actually might be nothing to do with you. It might be because 100 years ago, Victorians decided that a widow should mourn for this amount of days. So you feel that after three years, you should be fine. Because somewhere in your, you know, your internal psyche of this cultural knowledge is like, oh, this is too long. And also, it does feel too long. You want you want it to be over. So then we start adding that. So, and I think the post-war thing is, is massive. You know, this country went through a horrific experience. And we can kind of relate to that now, pandemic life. You know, we call it post-pandemic, even though it's still going on. There's some people who do not want to talk about it, don't want to remember it, and just want to move on. And if you you know, even bring up like, oh, maybe we should still wear masks. They're like, no, no, no. And that must, that must have been what it was like after the war to be like, oh, should we talk about what happened? No, it's so awful. Let's just move on. <laughs> like, obviously, a thousand times worse. So much, you know, the, well, I don't know. It's, it's, you can compare and not compare, but yeah, it's, there's reasons that this happened, but your grief might need to be reframed rather than influenced by those things. But my next question was going to be about the pandemic, actually. Do you think that um, our public conversation about death has become any easier as a result of the pandemic? Have you noticed anything, any changes? I think well, when the pandemic was really happening, that, you know, the sort of, I guess 2020, the first year of it, I did notice people really willing to talk about it because they felt very vulnerable. They felt mo a lot of people had 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 grief happen to them. You know, they, they'd lost someone maybe very close or maybe yes, a few steps removed, but they had, they knew you, everyone kind of knew someone who'd lost someone. So I found 2020, you know, people asking me to come on the radio and talk about it. They wanted to have the conversations. And it reminded me of, of normal grief in that the first year, everyone was happy to talk about it. And then after that, they were like, nah, we're not talking about grief anymore. We've, we kind of covered it. We kind of covered it. And you're like, grief 
is continuous and people who lost people in the pandemic are still suffering because they're still having to deal with you know they didn't get a funeral they didn't get a ritual they didn't get to have anyone help them at that time so I think we had a brief moment where everyone was willing to have that conversation and I think actually now maybe like post-war I see a lot of people packing down and going I I don't want to and what they might mean is I can't like it's too painful for me but I notice media wise like I think maybe this is off topic but like even the thing with Prince Harry at the moment there's a lot of focus on other things and I don't hear a lot of grief. Like he sounds like so grieving. He sounds like someone who's just absolutely in grief. But I see a lot of focus on other things and I think I think we get wary of talking about grief. Like media especially is like, well, we've already covered it. It was a bit depressing. <laughs> so, you know, people don't want that. People don't want that. And you're like, who says people don't want to have their feelings acknowledged? So I don't know. I think we had a little moment and I think the moment is maybe currently closing up, but maybe that's unfair. And I, I think you've touched on a very important point about the people who couldn't have, couldn't grieve. You know, it was even more difficult because of the pandemic because they couldn't yeah, see their friends. Yeah. So my my mum died in February 2020 and we were incredibly oh, lucky. We were, we were around her bedside and um, then we had a funeral with everybody. Um, yeah. And then two weeks later we were in lockdown. And so my dad was on his own um, and yeah. it was really hard. And, and yet we feel lucky because at least we had the funeral and the deathbed goodbye and so many people didn't. And I think it's, really difficult because you you don't get that time back in a sense you don't get it back and there's still a fallout from it like even I had my second child five days before the lockdown so but I am the same I'm like well I was lucky like my husband could come in and everyone everyone was very like oh who knows what's mm." I had him and then like five days later everyone was like oh actually this is really happening (laughs) but the, the beginning everyone was a bit relaxed but there's still a fallout to to that situation to that fear and your dad having to be by himself like there's still a that was still hard that was still painful that still needs processing so I think that's it we can I think we're very good sometimes being like oh well that was good and we're lucky and then we don't kind of acknowledge oh but I am sad about this other thing that happened like you know like it's the oh they had a good innings conversation you know where I understand it obviously if someone lives to 90 plus of yeah wow that's great they did have a good innings but it doesn't mean we can't be sad about it or you don't miss them or you don't feel like you wish you could have gone to their funeral all of this stuff that I think we're very quick to sweep away negative emotions because we fear them yes and it's it's much easier to sort of be counting our blessings in a very kind of yeah way and yeah yes it's important to do both obviously you don't want to go down like oh everything's awful but equally you don't do oh everything's fine (laughs) you want to hold both those things and be like yeah we were really lucky and it was really sad I didn't get to see my dad and make sure he was okay for those three months when we no one could do anything yes 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 I mean it's interesting that um you think the conversation has perhaps gone away in the media because at the same time I've noticed um quite a lot of what we might call if it doesn't sound too enough celebrity sort of grief memoirs so you've had yes that's true yeah Richard E. Grant you've had I know you've spoken to James Runcie you've spoken to Richard Coles about their books Rob Delaney of course wrote a very moving book recently about the loss of his child I wonder if there's any reason why grief memoirs seem to be a thing at the moment are we just getting better at talking about death and loss and grief or is it just because I don't know people had time on their hands during the pandemic to write these books yeah it's interesting isn't it I mean I the other thing I'd say is maybe it seems like they're more Mm, it's interesting because as someone who's been doing the show for six years I can tell you there's been grief memoirs that whole time (laughs) like I have read so many um and there's been some you know very predominant ones but I wonder if because of the pandemic like I said there was this gap like where we we were all willing to have those those books be bestsellers and read and talk about them 
or maybe that's unfair I also think I do think we have got a lot better and I think it's interesting as well that those people you listed is all men talking about very emotional subjects and I think we are allowing people and men particularly to be more emotional and to talk about something as as emotional as grief um and maybe they again that because the conversation is opening up they feel like they can write that book and people will buy it and they will talk about it and they and they want to and they need to so I think we are I'm very I think we are getting better but I'm very wary of letting us off the hook and being like oh we're so good at it because I still think we're okay when someone's fresh when someone's like, this just happened to me. So here's my book. Here's my story. This just happened to me. We're like, oh, that's awful. That's awful. But if someone comes along 10 years and is like, I want to write another book and talk about it. We're like, really? 10 years? Really? Oh, okay. Or if someone's bawling their eyes out and saying to you, well, it was 20 years ago, but I still feel this depth of pain that I can't, I'm really struggling to hold. Oh my God, 20 years, she's still crying. So I, I think we're very good at like immediate pain because that we can understand it. We're like, yes, it's just happened to you. That's awful. But I think what we need to get better at is people who are still grieving and understanding that grief is a thing that will be present forever. And that is okay that people still get sad. You don't have to fix them. You don't have to wrap, wrap it up and make it okay. Like they're just still sad that someone died and that's that's okay. Um, but I think we we still have a little bit to go with that. <laughs> No, that's a very good point. Um, You talk in the book about um, your father's funeral, which was at a church where you had connections. And you also mention attending a different church as a child. (laughs) But I I don't sense, and I might be wrong here, I don't sense the church really offered your family what we might call any aftercare. I mean, am I right about that? And is that something you can imagine might have been welcome if it was on offer or might be welcome to people grieving? Yeah, that's interesting. Um... I haven't been asked that obviously because it's your you know your your um, interest of topic of interest um I I I guess what I'm why I'm struggling to answer is so we were very connected to this church called All Hallows by the Tower and my grandfather was very connected so I think he probably did have aftercare from them because he was very close to the um I never know what the term is like the 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 not the rev like the person whose church it was what's the word like chief chief vicar <laughs> The main, the main guy, um, who who I've actually st- had stayed in contact with, um, I'm so sorry. I'm gonna, his name's Peter Delaney. I don't know what his like. I know he was a bishop at one point. I'm so sorry. He's retired. I get all the the you know the official terms wrong, um, but and Peter Delaney has been very kind, and I've I actually went to see him, and then he he's emailed me because he knew my grandfather very well, and my dad pretty well, so um, I would. It, probably wouldn't want to say or they didn't do aftercare for me because I was I was such a teenager and we didn't go to that church um every week and then yeah I think by then we weren't really going to the local church I remember finding the local church particularly uninspiring just like very much getting the kind of oh my thoughts are with you do you want a tea to my mum and being like is that it like, <laughs> like wow okay like our world has imploded um and there definitely wasn't any, again, I, it's a bit hard for me to answer because maybe my mum got more, you know, there definitely wasn't anything from me or my brother at all or any kind of sense of, even with All Hallows, I didn't get the sense of like, you know, come come back. Um, but I, equally when I did go back on the times I have been back because that church does mean a lot to me personally, even though I don't particularly have a faith anymore, that building has its weird own faith that I have there. I've always felt very welcomed there. And as I said, Peter's been very kind. And if I have contacted him, he's been like, oh, yes, I remember and like happy to talk. And I mean, he is an absolute um, 
a really brilliant character so that does help um but yeah I think they could have done more I, and I also wonder now if they would do more I think it, it was really as we say 1998 people just kind of it was a weak cup of tea and sorry for your loss and that was what more what more do you want and I you know <laughs> yeah, it's interesting isn't it I'm, I'm very struck talking to you my local church offers um uh sort of bereavement um course which is I mean course sounds oh, like wow. But, you know, a come and talk about um, yeah, yeah. to anybody whose funeral has been in the church. And I think people find that very helpful. Yeah, um, yeah. Interestingly, I'm not sure whether anyone would think of offering it to someone whose bereavement was 10 years ago or 20 years ago. Yeah, it, yeah What yeah. you were saying about in the sort of immediate aftermath, it's much more obvious, isn't it, that something might need yeah. to be done. Yeah, that's that's really interesting because I think that's amazing that they offer that. Like, that's amazing. But equally to have a sign up saying it doesn't matter how long it's been. Like, if you had your funeral here 10 years ago, we'd still love to hear from you. Could make somebody feel like, oh, I have, I've got permission. Because I think we all know those first, you know, first one to two years of grief, everyone gives you permission. Yes, you can cry in the supermarket. Yes, you can come into church and talk about it. You've just lost someone. But after about two years, and I, I get so many emails from people saying, it's like everyone thinks it didn't happen like or it didn't matter it's forgotten it doesn't get brought up and yeah I definitely got that sense from like sort of I guess the you know the local community that after two years it was like well they're fine they're fine they're fine they're oh very sad it's very sad but they're fine (laughs) it's like oh okay yes so we need to give people permission to talk about it but we also need to make sure those of us who perhaps haven't had this sort of loss know that this is what's needed I think I mean obviously yeah. as you get older you know the likelihood of you having been bereaved you know rises massively obviously but when you're young you don't necessarily know that that's what people need I'm not sure I would have known with a teenage friend how to support yeah. them for example um I just wouldn't have known um as a teenager myself um but yeah the more we can talk about it the better yeah, and I think that's fine. Like the other thing to say is, I now understand like people just didn't know what to do with me, and I also understand like that's totally understandable. I equally now as an old as an adult, if I saw a teenager, I'd be like, oh my god, what what should, like what if I don't know them well that well? But I think it for me the key is like long term showing up. So like if the first six months you come around to someone's house and you bring some food and you check they're okay, please after a year do that. Please after two years just be like oh do you know do they want can I take them out like do they want to talk about it like and they might say to you especially with teenagers they might say absolutely no way I do not want to talk about it that doesn't mean they that's true (laughs) and it also doesn't mean you can't repeatedly say I know you don't want to talk about it but I'm just reminding you if you ever do I'm here and I think that just being the adult to say I'm gonna just keep saying I'm here can be really helpful Yes, I think that's really good advice. And that your book is full of really practical, helpful advice. And we haven't oh, got time good. to do it at all. Um, but I was just thinking, if there was, is there one thing you've learned through this whole business that you wish you as 15-year-old Cariad had known? Is there just, you know, um, there are lots of lots of things. <laughs> What's, is there a one standout thing? Yeah, I think the main, and the reason it's, it's called that is that I wasn't alone. I really thought what happened to us was like a freak, weird accident. I didn't even know that pancreatic cancer was like the fifth biggest cancer death in this country. I thought he'd had a very strange, weird cancer and that no one else had lost anyone that quickly. And it was really weird. And that made me feel really odd and strange and like no one understood me. And then when I started the show and I realised, oh my God, there's so many of us who have lost parents as teenagers, lost them to cancer, lost them to pancreatic cancer. So I think 
just to know you're not alone. Like whatever you're feeling right now in your grief, your grief is unique, but other people have been through what you've been through and have somehow, somehow, they might not be able to tell you how, they've got through it to the next day. And so to kind of know like you're on this journey and there's lots of people in front of you and they are okay, like somehow they're okay, is such a such a like a good feeling in grief and there's not many good feelings in grief so to have this like oh I see other people have got through this okay maybe I'll be all right somehow that's a really excellent note to end on so Carrie thank you very much for your time it's been a real pleasure talking to you thank you for your book I hope it goes really well and for our listeners it's called you are not alone and it's published by Bloomsbury and we wish you all the best with it Carrie thank Thank you so much thank you thank you Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website, churchtimes.co.uk. If you are not yet a subscriber to the Church Times, you can try your first 10 issues for just £10. You'll get the paper delivered to your door every Friday, plus full access to our website and digital archive. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more.